You're listening to a sermon from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas. Get to know Grace Church better by visiting our website at www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Today's speaker is Pastor Caleb Wilkinson. For those of you who I don't know, my name's Caleb. I get to be one of the pastors here, and I'm eager to press in to what God has for us in his word today. But I, I want to begin, like I did last time I preached, by asking you to imagine. Imagine if you could do anything you want, and absolutely nothing was off limits, and your choices were unlimited. How, how would you feel? At first you think, yes, I'd feel great. That's exactly what I want. Author Sally Lloyd-Jones admits this, though. She says, the reality is, if you're like me, you don't feel free. You feel trapped. There are too many things that you could do, so you end up not doing any of them. You're frozen with indecision, facing all the possibilities. The more restrictions you have, the easier anything is to write, at least. If I don't have a deadline or a framework, a word count, I get stuck. When there's nothing I can't do, in the end, I don't do anything. It's the opposite of what you'd expect. Dr. Seuss wrote Cat in the Hat because he was asked to write an early reader book and give it a limited vocabulary list. The first two words on that list were cat and hat. The book that might seem one of the most free of any children's books ever written was born of severe constraints and strict limitations. Did you hear what she just said? What appears most free is born out of severe constraints and strict limitations. She goes on to illustrate freedom this way. She says, every year around this time, we go to North Cornwall. I just got back from a trip. We did all these lovely long walks on the coastal path that leads you on quite a narrow cliff path with a sheer drop. One misstep and you would plummet to your death on the rocks below. There are no railings or fences, so you have to step carefully, gingerly at times, very slowly, and keep looking down, watching every step. However, if there were fences at the edge of the cliff... You could, in theory, race full speed right up to the boundary of the fence without fear. You're freer in that sense with the fence than you are without it. You are free to run and play and not be so careful. In 1 Peter 2, the Lord puts us on a path with rails. And at first glance, it may appear as severe restrictions and strict limitations. And that really makes sense in a land that prizes the motto, don't tread on me. And that that motto, don't tread on me, is prized in our land. It's put on license plates. It's raised on flags. It's it's celebrated. I think it's the case because restrictions can feel like a curse, but in the upside down of kingdom, of kingdom of Jesus, could they be disguised blessings like the rails on the edge of cliffs? What if, in fact, they help us live more free, not less free? The Lord will make a claim on our lives from his word this morning, and I think it's this. Freedom 
and Jesus means subjection for Jesus. This is the fenced-in path of Christian freedom, subjection. Freedom in Jesus means subjection for Jesus. Let's get into the text. Please read with me. 1 Peter 2, starting in verse 11. This is God's word to us this morning. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject, for the Lord's sake, to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him, to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God. One endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you've been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you've been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Freedom in Jesus means subjection. For Jesus. This, this freedom is so very counterintuitive. So to better understand it, we're going to look at freedom embraced first, then freedom expressed, and finally freedom exemplified. Freedom embraced in Jesus, freedom expressed for Jesus, and freedom exemplified by Jesus. So first, freedom embraced in Jesus. Verses 11 and 12 are the overarching exhortations of our entire passage. We looked at them a bit last week, but we need them. We need them again to make sense of the rest of the passage too. Peter urges the church to do two things generally. Number one, to abstain from the passions of the flesh. And number two, to keep their conduct among the unbelieving Gentiles among whom they live. Keep their conduct honorable. But biblical ethics always start with biblical identity. Peter is urging them to do something here because of who they already are. Who are they? Sojourners and exiles. He opened his letter with these identities, but now we we have seen what this means more. Verse 9 says that God's people are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. This is a privileged status. This should be thrilling, They aren't exiles because something awful has happened to them. They're exiles because something marvelous has happened to them. The good news of Jesus has changed 
everything. His otherworldly grace has so changed everything that they no longer belong to this world. Because God's claimed them for his own. They essentially have new passports. Their deepest identity isn't where they live or what they have or what they do for a living. Their deepest identity is that they belong to Jesus. They're tethered to Jesus, and his pull on their lives has become irresistible. That's what marks them as exiles, this pull. And this pull doesn't just mark them. It frees them from all the other pulls in the world. Now, we start here because Peter starts here. And because if we don't start here, we won't be able to stomach what he's going to call us to do. We need to see that everything we're about to be called to do is for Jesus, the master that we're we're, we're tethered to. We're sojourners. We're sojourners here because he is our new allegiance. We're free because he governs us. And Peter saturates his entire passage, this entire passage with this reality. So first look at verse 16. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Okay, did you hear that? Live as people who are free, living as servants of God. Live as free, live as servants. Those go together for Peter. Being sojourners and exiles doesn't mean we don't have an allegiance. It means that our ultimate allegiance isn't here. It means our ultimate allegiance is is with him. We've traded in uh, our old allegiance and we've pledged allegiance to another king with a completely different kingdom. So live as people who are free, living as servants of God. Our freedom is in bondage to God. Let's look at verse 12 again with these same lenses on now. It says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So why do we keep our conduct honorable? So that they may see our good deeds and glorify God. The goal of our honorable conduct is that God gets the glory, our good deeds witness to his goodness. They serve God him. Let's look at verse 13 and verses 15 with these lenses. It says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. And then verse 15, for this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Did you hear, did you hear the purpose and the reason we're to be subject here? It's for the Lord's sake. Verse 13, verse 15, this is the will of of God. He's the one sending us to be subject, and he's doing this so that he will be exalted. After all, we're doing it for him, not for, for them. And finally, in, in verse 17, we're called to honor everyone, but we're called to fear God alone. We fear him, and so we're freed from fearing anyone or anything else. We belong to him, and, and only because we're his servants are we free. Church, this is the first button on the shirt. If we don't get this, we're going to be way off in all the ways we handle the rest of this passage. We're free in bondage 
to God. Now, this can be challenging for us to accept. Modern Western people like us have been taught to view freedom as a complete absence of any restraints, any, no constraints. But that's, that's not even possible if you think about it. So if, you, if your life motto is, don't tread on me, think about how that works. You'll actually be enslaved to that motto because you won't be able to ever endure mistreatment. You won't be able to ever submit to a lie you dislike. There's a lot of those. And so if you're living consistently with that as your motto, don't tread on me, you're actually enslaved to that. You're never able or free to submit to a law you don't like. Everybody will be ruled by someone or something. That's just the nature of being a human. But true freedom is being ruled by the right things and not the wrong ones. A fish is not free when he leaves water. A bird or an airplane is not free when they rebel against the laws of aerodynamics. Just the same. A Christian is not free when he or she does whatever the heck they want to do. The way of Christian freedom is the way of bondage to Christ. If you haven't yet seen the movie by Terrence Malick called A Hidden Life, I highly recommend you, you rent it on Prime or whatever you got to do. It's a great movie. It's, it's not really a typical movie. It's not designed to entertain you. It's designed to make you think. It's designed, it's designed to make you think about who your ultimate allegiance is to. Who or what do you owe allegiance? So it's about, it's a true, a true story about a Austrian farmer named Franz in uh, World War II, and he's drafted by the Nazi army in World War II, and he doesn't believe in the Nazi cause, and yet he doesn't desert. He doesn't flee. He doesn't run and desert the draft, and he doesn't revolt and rebel and stir up some kind of revolution in his village or whatnot. What he does is he, he tries to be a good citizen as far as he go, can go, so he reports to the draft. And he reports to the draft knowing he's not going to be able to do everything that is going to be required of him to do. And he goes in with his eyes wide open to the potential consequences. So the thing is, is Franz can't swear allegiance to Hitler. But, he, but like every good soldier drafted, he reports to the draft, and on day one at camp, When everybody's swearing allegiance and raising their hand to Hitler, he doesn't. And he's arrested immediately and uh, imprisoned and tried for treason with this huge sentence of of execution for treason hanging over him the whole time. And, of course, people uh, are trying to talk him out of it. He's got a beautiful wife, beautiful children, and so they're trying to talk him out of it. At one point, his village priest comes to his prison in Berlin and says, God doesn't care what you say. Say the oath and think what you like. What God cares about is what's in your heart. And his defense attorney agrees. He says, pushes him a piece of paper and says, sign the paper and you'll go free. And this is the point in the movie that says it all. What will Franz do? Sign the paper and you'll go free. Franz replies... I'm already free. I'm already free. You see, Franz was a Christian. 
He was a Christian, and he submitted as far as he could, but he had a different loyalty. He was in bondage to Christ, and that's why he could say, but I'm already free. Now, Lord willing, none of us has to, none of us in this room will have to face a situation like Franz, but have you embraced this freedom? This freedom of living as Jesus' servant no matter what? Are you already free? Free of your teacher or bosses or coaches' evaluation? Or are you living in bondage to their opinion? Are you right now, where you sit, already free of the opinions of your parents and friends and teammates and coworkers? Are you enslaved to them? Only in bondage to Jesus can we be free of all other bondages. And if you've embraced this freedom, if you're tethered to Christ as your master, you'll want to express this freedom as he calls us to. And so let's look at freedom expressed for Jesus now. Christians who live in freedom of bondage to Jesus want to properly express this freedom. And the two overarching ways this sojourner freedom is expressed is Again, one, by abstaining from the passions of the flesh, and two, by keeping our conduct among the people that live around us honorable. Last week, we heard a little bit about abstaining from the passions of the flesh, but the rest of this chapter is about honorable conduct. It describes honorable conduct. And notice, when Peter describes honorable conduct, these good deeds were to exhibit, he focuses on one thing, submission. Submission. He, he doesn't describe it exhaustively, but instead focuses on submission in three key relationships for our witness. He starts with relationships to the government and then moves to the economic relationships, as we read. And next week, you'll read about him moving to uh, the family relationship, mainly marriage. And the summary banner is that freedom in Jesus means subjection for Jesus. Jesus frees us from the world, and then he sends us back into the world, not so that we can disengage and withdraw from the world, not to conquer it with political activism or military revolution, and certainly not so that we can accommodate and assimilate to the world to be just like it. We're, we're to be distinct. We're foreigners. We're exiles, after all. We're to be distinct from the world. But he sends us back into the world to inhabit the authority structures he's established as his witnesses. And a primary way to witness is to be subject, to voluntarily serve as good citizens. Freedom is for serving. And notice the general call here in in verse 13. It says this, it says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. So this list isn't exhaustive. I think it applies to your school or if you're in the military or the particular business organization you work at or or maybe your sports team. Anything with authority structures that humans have created. All the same, our submission isn't mainly to an institution, but to the creatures made in God's image that have been given roles in those institutions by God's appointments. I think this because of how Peter summarizes his command in verse 17. So if you look just a little bit ahead, he says this, Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. 
So honor everyone. Everyone is due honor and respect because everyone's made in God's image. Don't lose, don't lose sight of how radical this idea is. It's a great equalizer. Peter is not giving a frontal direct attack to the evils of emperor worship that was so widespread in that day. And he's not going to give a frontal attack to the evils of slavery, but he's going to give a more effective attack because what he's going to do is spread seeds into the soil of these evils that the seeds are going to get down in there and uproot the whole thing. It's going to undermine the whole thing. So don't, don't miss how radical this is. These are the seeds that end slavery. These are the seeds that end emperor worship. Everyone's in God's, made in God's image. Therefore, everyone, everyone is due honor and respect. And look how he ends. He says, honor the emperor. In some ways, treat the emperor like every other person. Give him his due honor. He's a man made in the image of God. Just like you and everyone else. Pretty equalizing. Everyone is due honor. So honor the emperor. But now, we can't flatten this out more than Scripture does, okay? There is something distinct about the honor we're to give an emperor. What differs here is not the honor or respect due, but the form in which that honor or respect takes on. So honor doesn't differ, forms of honor do. So if you think about our legal system, it really, it really practices this well because it says we got to honor everybody in the process. We're going to honor a convicted criminal who's been involved in genocide way different than we're going to honor someone who's proven innocent. We're not going to treat any of them like animals. We're not going to take them around the back and shoot them. We're going to treat them like human beings. We're going to give them a fair trial. We're going to honor them. But the form of honor looks different for the guilty and the innocent. In this passage, for instance, we, we, we honor everyone, but we reserve a special kind of honor for the brotherhood, the, the church. This form of honor is one of, of special love and affection that's not due to everybody. We honor all, but the form of honor due to people in authority in our institutions is submission. Verse 12, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Okay, this is startling. This is as countercultural as it gets. And I don't know about you, but my initial reaction is one of resistance. I'm like not the pastor that should be preaching this text based off my, my history. This is hard for me. So I'm preaching to you as one. This is, one, this is hard for me. My initial reaction is resistance, to look for the loophole, to look for the exception, to figure out how to dilute this passage and make it mean something. Maybe Peter isn't intending it to mean. Freedom in Jesus means subjection for Jesus doesn't feel right. But let's all get real and let's admit that we bring some major bias into the reading of this letter. And we live in America, the home of the brave, the home of the free. We live in the home of the free. And, and if that wasn't enough, the fact is inside each of us is a heart of rebellion. 
the heart of rebellion against good authorities. Why else do children, why else are children so prone to rebel against parents who love them, who nourish them, who protect them, who give themselves for them? How else do you explain that? How else else do you explain Adam and Eve being in paradise with God, rebelling against our, our good God? We've inherited their rebellious ways, and so we're inclined to rebel. So it doesn't take much for us to search for a loophole here. That's like our default. Now, please hear me say this. Of course there are exceptions to submission. Please hear me say this. We cannot submit to commands that God requires us, that requires us to do what God forbids or what, or what forbid us to do what God requires. So we can't, we can't do what God forbids. We can't not do what God requires. Peter's ultimately going to die for being out of compliance somehow. There, there's exceptions, but Peter doesn't concede any here. The emphasis is not on the exceptions, but submission, a call by God through Peter for civil obedience. Our, our default is to submit to the government, and we only consider exceptions with great weight, with care, prayer, and counsel. And I, I know this is hard to stomach. I, I just let on a little bit of who's, who's preaching to you, but, but it's helpful to me, and I hope to you, to remember the context of this letter. Remember, Peter's passing this command off to a church that's going to be persecuted under Emperor Nero, who was an incredibly unjust and evil man. It was under Nero that Paul will be decapitated. It's under Nero who Peter himself will be crucified upside down. And so that's helpful to remember that, that, that this is the context because all of a sudden, honoring President Biden or President Trump, or President Obama, or President Bush, or President Clinton, kind of seems like junior varsity, doesn't it? I mean, Peter's calling his readers to submit to the very government that will burn Christians, put them on a stake, burn them, for the lighting of the city of Rome. And he's doing so without spelling out any exceptions. So, I don't know how you feel about AOC or Lindsey Graham or Governor Newsom over in California or Governor Abbott or Candidate Beto, but God calls us to honor and respect them by submitting to them or the likes of them. If Peter can tell his church to honor Emperor Nero, I think he would tell us that we are to honor each of the men or women that I just mentioned, because freedom in Jesus means subjection to them for Jesus. And again, I know this is hard, but remember, we, we do it in freedom. Fre- freedom doesn't mean we're free to sin. It doesn't mean we're, we're free to kind of stir up bloody rebellion. And, and freedom doesn't mean that we're free from responsibility. It means we're free to serve, not just by doing no harm to those people in authority, but by doing them all the good we can, by being good citizens. This is God's goodwill, and it's 
for the good of Jesus. Verse 15 would suggest that submission to authority is the strongest apologetic against a view that Christians are never up to any good. Subjection is for witness. Let's get real. The non-Christian world around us, the non-Christian world around us has enough to criticize us about. And we're, we're, we're claiming the exclusivity of Christ. We're talking about hell. We embrace a biblical sexual, sexual ethic that seems completely backwards, and they're, they're even calling it evil. I mean, they got enough to criticize us about from their worldview. But if they're going to scorn us, let them do so convinced that we are darn good citizens. We're the best citizens. And Peter is going to now apply this same principle to slaves or household servants. Verses 18 through 20. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God. One endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Now, I wish I had more time to discuss this. There's all kinds of paths I could go to nuance this. I don't have time to do that. I wish I could discuss this more. But Peter's not condoning slavery. The Bible condemns slavery. If you don't believe me, just flip to 1 Timothy 1, and it's pretty clear. But in fact, the slavery here is not not the same kind of slavery that's in our nation's history. This wasn't slavery based on race, and it wasn't slavery that was built on man-stealing. David Helm says that a closer modern-day equivalent might be someone who received their college education for free in exchange for serving five years in the armed forces upon graduation, or medical school students and residents who receive a wage but are nonetheless owned by the institution who has agreed to pay for their training. All the same, it was evil. This this is horrendous. People were owned. The slaves were actually oftentimes more educated, more brilliant, than more more trained, more capable than the people who owned them. But it was all all messed up. People were owned. There was a chance for freedom, unlike uh, a lot of the slavery in our history. But all, all the same, these servants are to be subject to their masters, even to those who are unjust. They're to be subject to the crooked, crooked. To cheaters. Peter's essentially saying, do you have an employer like that? Well, do all the good you can to them. And, and I think he means real good here, not just obedience, because masters don't punish servants for obedience. I, I think the idea here is to honor them and do as much good as you can to them, despite their merits. And you may even have to suffer for doing good because you're prioritizing something even higher than your master, you're prioritizing doing good. Honor your master. Do good to them, even if you suffer for it, because you serve God, not man. Peter says in verse 21, for this you've been called. This is a radical calling. This is radical. Listen to the way commentator Edmund Clowney describes it. Such treatment offers a golden opportunity to show the uniqueness of Christian service. By patiently enduring unmerited abuse, they show the opposite of a servile attitude. They demonstrate their freedom. If 
a Christian responds good for good and evil for evil. He becomes merely a victim when he's treated unjustly. In burning resentment, he seeks an opportunity to repay evil. But if he bears the evil patiently, he has broken the chain of bondage and the power of the Lord. He shows his confidence in God's justice. He need not avenge himself. He also shows that his service is not really forced, but voluntary. He is willing to serve his master for the Lord's sake, even to honor him for the Lord's sake. His master cannot enslave him, for he is Christ's slave. He cannot humiliate him, for he has humbled himself in willing subjection. Did you hear how radical that is? Did you hear the witness in that? By this type of submission, a slave shows that his service is not really forced, but voluntary. His master cannot enslave him, for he is Christ's slave already. He cannot humiliate him, for he has humbled himself in willing subjection. Listen, this is key. In freedom from the emperor or the governor or the master, we're sent back by God into subjection to the emperor and the governor and the master. This is radically different from worldly submission because we're free people. We don't owe those rulers anything because of them. Their merit or authority isn't why we submit to them. They don't ultimately rule us. We freely subject ourselves to them because we're servants of another king. He sent us back into his world to be good citizens who voluntarily serve for him. Scott McKnight puts the argument this way. Christians are to be good citizens because they're obedient to the Lord. Not good Christians because we're obedient to the state. Really, this is a subversive loyalty. Did you see that? It's a subversive loyalty. We say, I submit to you, emperor or president or master or boss or teacher. I'm loyal to you, not because you ruled me, but because God does. He rules me and he sent me to you to honor you, to respect you, to submit to you. Our Christian freedom undermines the whole power structure, not by withdrawing from it, not by revolting against it and overruling it, but by submitting to it freely because God overrules it all. And we do it ultimately so that he gets all the glory, so that he gets all the praise. When others see this lifestyle, this this freedom, they don't conclude, I want more of that emperor worship. Give me some more of Nero. They don't conclude, give me more of that crooked boss. I I want some more of that. No, they say, give me more Jesus. Give me more of that freedom that can say, I'm already free. I'm already free. A a great illustration for this comes from a man we know as St. Patrick. Maybe you've heard of him. St. Patrick was from the British Isles. When he was 16, he was, his land was invaded by Celtic pirates, and they stole him. They kidnapped him. They brought him to Ireland, and they enslaved him. To a, they sold him to a Druid, just pagan tribal chief. And Patrick, as a 16-year-old, was a slave for six years. And he had a dream after six years of slavery that that he thought was from God, and it it basically said, your freedom is imminent. Wake up and go to the shore. A boat is waiting for you. 
And so Patrick, he did. He woke up, he walked days to the coast, and he found the ship there waiting. He boarded it, and he set sail to freedom back in Britain. But years and years later, Patrick had another dream. He had another dream, and this dream had an angel who approached him with letters from his former captors in Ireland. And as he read one of the letters, he imagined in that moment that he heard the voice of those very people, and they cried out as with one voice, we appeal to you, holy servant boy, to come and walk among us. Patrick sensed that this was God's call on his life, and so he heeded. Freed from slavery in Ireland by Jesus, he voluntarily let the Lord, who was his master, send him back to Ireland, a land of pagans, to submit to those laws, to those chiefs that had, were barbarians and who, who had enslaved him for Jesus. To, to walk among them. And if you don't know the result, this changed the entire course of history. The gospel swept through Ireland. Much of Western civilization is here, still here, because of what happened, what God did through Patrick and the gospel spreading through Ireland and started sending missionaries back all over. There's a book called Irish Save Civilization. Well, it's because Patrick went first. This is a picture of all our call here in this text. In Jesus, we're given a new citizenship. We're freed from the slavery of the world and every human institution, every one of them. But we're then called to express this freedom by freely going back into those very human institutions and submitting in service to him as witnesses. How, how do we apply this in North Dallas? As citizens of the kingdom, and also citizens of the United States, potentially? How do we do this with our job and our boss? How, how do we show honor to everyone? How, how do we keep our conduct honorable by submitting to our authorities? Don't have time to get into all the nuts and crannies of this, but please let me just make this suggestion for your consideration. It's not by following the crowds of incivility that no matter what news channel you pick is there or what social media you're on or what talk show radio you're listening to or podcast or whatnot, don't follow the crowds of incivility. And, and it's not by joining the current of cynicism at your workplace. Let me propose two virtues for us to pursue together, patience and civility. Now, somebody asked me during the, uh, you might ask the same thing, does this mean we can't agree, we've got to keep our mouths shut? No, we live in, we live in the U.S., we've got to participate. Civility uh, assumes that you're going to participate. You're going to speak, you're going to, that you're going to participate. But do it with civility, with respect, with honor. There's a way to participate that's dishonorable. There's a way to speak that's dishonorable, and there's a way to do it in a way that's honorable. So participate. You're not telling you to suffer and keep your mouth shut. But on that note, it wouldn't be bad to pursue patience. We are so quick to be outraged whenever we've experienced any kind of mistreatment. We, it's almost like we're enslaved to our rights. We're not able. We're not capable of, of enduring any kind of mistreatment or any kind of suffering, any kind of offense. So 
what I encourage is, is pursue civility, can pursue patience, especially when we're mistreated. Civility in response to mistreatment is a beautiful witness. We're free to do this after all, aren't we? Aren't we? Are we really? Are we free to do this? Yes. We are. Now I'm going to add one more virtue, actually. I didn't have this in my notes, but I want to add it. And that's, the, that's it's more like a practice than a virtue. Lament. Lament. There's real wrongs. There's really leaders that are misdirecting, misleading. There's real policies that are broken. What if we were to respond with lament instead of outrage? What if we were to take the outrage and push it out and, and embrace lament that says that really is wrong? It breaks my heart that that leader has been so misguided and that he's been elected by people or put into a, a position at my work by people that didn't value character, didn't value what's really true. And, and, and maybe we could lament for the ways this negatively impacts people and respond and lament. That the, the nature of responding and lament to what's broken is very different than the nature of responding to what's broken with outrage. One's going to be conducive to being respectful and honorable, and the other one is going to be conducive to the opposite. And so... Civility, patience, lament, and, and I encourage you to pray, pray about it. Ask for help. This is probably be something new for us. It's not, there's not a lot of models in our culture. And I'd suggest this too, especially with those of you with children. Start around your table, your dinner table. Practice there. I mean, you're showing your children how to treat their future boss, how to submit or not to submit to their future governors or presidents or whatnot. Are they going to do it? With respect and honor, with patience, with civility? Are they going to do it like Jesus? And that's where Peter leads us to next. He ends by giving us a great help. This will be the last point. It'll be a shorter point. But he, he ends by pointing us directly to Jesus to see freedom exemplified by Jesus. Verse 21 says this, For to this you've been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Listen, church, this is vital. Subjection is not the dominant mark of the Christian life. It's not the foundation of our life. It's not as if God sends us in the world to be known as people who blindly adhere to some principle we call submission. It's it's not the foundation of our life. Subjection is the Christian path because being like Christ is the Christian goal. Subjection is the Christian path because being like Christ is the Christian's goal. And Jesus himself lived a life of meekness and subjection. The one who said, let there be light and a sun, lots of suns, lots of galaxies came. He said, let there be animals, land, water. That one with that kind of power came with meekness. He lived a life of subjection. The one we're called to imitate stands in the middle of all these calls for submission. He exemplified the sort of life he calls us to live. He left us an example. Now, the original word here, example, 
has this kind of uh, sense of uh, a pattern to be traced. So if you were to think of like your, a children's book that teaches them how to write the, their ABCs, little dotted lines, and you just kind of follow the line and you form a letter, that's what the, the, the idea is here in Christ left us an example. He left a pattern to trace, and it's a pattern of submission to the authorities around him. So just look at verses 22 and 23 with me. It says this, he said, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Peter had intimate knowledge of these steps. He had front row seats to this subjection to mistreatment. And we need to see what Peter saw. Jesus did it freely. He did it freely. He wasn't coerced. He wasn't helpless. He was free from paying Caesar's taxes, and yet he freely chose to pay them as not to give an offense. He was free from Pilate's verdict. He actually tells Pilate something like this. You know, the only reason you have any sort of authority is because you do do have authority, but the reason you have it is because the one who has authority over you and me gave it to you. And so he, he subjects himself to Pilate's verdict, and he expresses his freedom by, by being unjustly accused, condemned, and crucified freely. He was free because he entrusted himself to his father. What an example. What a pattern we have to trace. But listen, we have even more here. His life is not only an example. It's a saving example. For to this you've been called because Christ also suffered for you. He, he suffered for you. Why? Read verses 24 and 25 with me. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds we've been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. If we miss this, the whole point will be lost. There's a part of this example we can't imitate. He suffered for you. He bore our sins on the cross in his body that we might live to his righteousness, that we might live on the right path, his path, in his footsteps, on tracing his pattern. In him we died to sin and all the paths of worldly freedom. Friends, this is the gospel. Through atonement, we're already freed. We're already freed. We don't need to We don't imitate this saving work. It's already been done once and for all. The edge of, on the the rail on the edge of the cliff has been erected. The fence is set. We're his. And so we're free to run on this path with him, tracing the pattern. We were straying off of it. But now we've returned to him, the overseer of our souls. Church, as we end, notice the grammar change Peter makes in the very last sentence. He moves from using the second person plural to the first person plural. The whole letter, the whole letter and this whole passage, he's been saying, y'all, y'all do this. Y'all are this. Y'all are sojourners and exiles and you need to do this. Y'all, y'all, y'all. But now, we were straying. But now we have returned to him. This is so important because Peter didn't get this lesson overnight. He messed this up royally on the night that Jesus did all this for him. Do you remember Peter's response to the government officials when they came to the Garden of Gethsemane? 
when the soldiers came to arrest Jesus, Peter pulled out his sword and went on the offensive and attacked until Jesus said, Peter, put your sword down. This wasn't the way of Jesus' kingdom. And Peter immediately overcorrects to the other side. He, he follows Jesus' footsteps literally. He watches him suffer unjustly as we just read for him. And when Peter gets asked if he follows Jesus, he cowers. He accommodates and denies his king three times. Peter was done with Jesus. But Jesus wasn't done with Peter. Jesus dies for Peter. Jesus rises and then Peter, Jesus goes after Peter to restore him. And he tells Peter, again, follow me, Peter. And something changed in Peter because Peter does. Because Peter's writing us a different man. He needed the gospel. As well-intentioned as Peter may have been before, he couldn't follow Jesus before. He needed the gospel. He needed to know that he was a straying sheep and that Jesus died in his place to return Peter to himself. The gospel transformed Peter. He's writing us from his footsteps, from Jesus's footsteps now. He's finally embraced freedom and Jesus. And so the, in the end, he's not going to cower. He's going to express his freedom by walking on this path of submission that will lead him to death. And he's going to do it having put his sword down a hard path for Peter. It's a hard path for us. But the gospel makes it possible and beautiful. Freedom in Jesus means subjection for Jesus. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church. To receive future messages, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or listen online by visiting our website at gracechurchfrisco.org.